Last time I saw Peter and Spike, we were in a restaurant in London, the Trattu, this Italian restaurant in, in Kensington in London. And, uh, and we sat, where there was a, a mutual friend who used to play the piano there called Alan Clare. And Alan was a, a very dear old friend who played beautiful piano. And he had a wonderful memory for things. He used to remember all the Ellington things. I mean, things like Blue Surge, you know. And that, that most people have forgotten. He, Max, I mean, uh, Alan would remember all those things. And he would remember the exact harmonies and everything. And he used to play all those. And we used to love going there and sitting with, with Alan and then going to have something to eat and then come back and sit with Alan. And, of course, Spike and Peter loved Alan's playing as well. So we, we were all there in the bar around the piano one night. And I think that Peter and Spike had been having a good time and consuming quite a bit of alcohol. And, uh, and they decided to sing a Russian, what was it, style song. You know, you know those songs that are very, very sad. You see, and then they pick up speed and they get faster and faster and faster, and then they go sad again. You know, and and Peter was doing that. That was the uh, that was the kick he was on that particular night. And Spike used to take his trumpet and play. Spike used to you take his trumpet in there and, and play the trumpet. You know. <laughs> afternoon good evening delete as applicable welcome to goompod my name's tyler adams and i'm joined this week by the writer louis barth louis came along to talk about the career of angela morley and a lot of it naturally centered around her work on the goon show and uh, much else besides so um yeah it was a good conversation hope you enjoy it here it is louis thank you very much for uh, for joining me oh no my pleasure my pleasure before we start talking properly, I just I just wanted to mention. I mean, with the the day we're recording is the day after the death was announced of Bernard Cribbins. Yes, very very sad, very sad. Uh, for people our age, he's a he was a bit <laughs> a bit like the Queen in that he's always been there from from like the Wombles onwards. Because when I was growing up, you know, oh God, yeah, you know, he, 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 he things like Star Turn and Jack and Ori and everything. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, and um, all those great comic songs that you know lived lived long after the uh, after their chart success. You know, they, I mean, even though you, you and I were sort of like probably you know kids twenty years after they were hits. You know, mm. we knew them. You know, Hole in the Ground, right? Said Fred and all that. But it, the thing about Bernard Cribbins was that he was also an incredibly good straight actor, um, and also a pretty good singer on his combination of Cribbins album. Um, incidentally produced by George Martin, who also mm. produced um, also produced all the Peter Sellers albums. Um, he, um, he he sang a couple of songs dead straight. He sang um, My Resistance is Low, lovely jazz waltz version of it. And um, I, I've grown accustomed to her face from uh, My Fair Lady. And he does that in this very beautiful, gorgeous Johnny Spence arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, if you haven't heard it, get yourself along to to a you know ethical streaming service or, or buy a <laughs> CD or whatever. Actually, I think you can buy the album from um, Johnny Trunk's website. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I think you can, I think you can buy that buy the album, and it's yeah. glorious. And actually, we're going to be talking about goon music um, and Angela Morley in this podcast, but I think that's very much of a piece with it the, the whole sort of light music uh jazz because because the you know my resistance is low it's basically it's, he does it it's basically as a jazz song you could almost imagine cleo lane singing it to the same arrangement <laughs> yeah i mean i haven't listened to his straight his straight stuff straight music um i guess one of my go-to i hate to use that phrase but one of my go-to movies that just for comfort viewing yeah is the on, let me let me stop you there. Oh, the railway children. I thought you were going to say two way stretch because two way two way stretch is mine. 
Oh, well, that's two, two Way Stretch is my second favorite Sellers film of all time. Uh, um, what's the first? Uh, uh, Shot in the Dark. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, but The Railway Children, I would say, is probably Edge's Two Way Stretch just in terms of Cribbins for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. I mean, he's he's obviously a very sweet character, a bit officious, mm. but yeah. there's that scene where he's so, he's got such pride, and there's that mm. scene where his wife, played by um, what's her name now, Diddy Davis, Diddy Davis, Diddy Davis, Diddy Davis, where he's so he's, I always I always thought she was great on World of Sport. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's so he's it's the scene where the children buy him, I think they buy him presents for his birthday, or they get him presents for his birthday. Yeah, he's he's. At, he's equally angry and touched by it, and it's uh, yeah, he's, such he's a lovely a scene. Yes, yeah, yeah. But um, I've seen a few episodes of Cribbins, you know, the sketch show. Sketch show, yeah. And that was that's pretty good. And uh, there's a Cribbins moment for every mood, I think. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if you want to, if you want him playing a complete and utter bastard, go and go and see Frenzy, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, he, he swears in that, doesn't he? Yeah, he's awful, an awful human being. I think it's the only time that Cribbins <laughs> played someone really, really reprehensible. Yes. <laughs> and, he, and, he does, and he does it well, and that's what you call acting. Because you know, I, I I never I never met him. I don't think, but I spoke to him on the phone once. Okay. Uh, yeah, we were trying to set something up that never happened, and uh, but he, he was lovely. I mean, obviously, it come, I saw. I noticed you tweeted yesterday about it, and you mentioned that it obviously comes yeah. a few months after the death of Dear Baz. And yeah, uh, and I know that you 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 were a, a friend of Barry yeah. Cryer's, weren't yeah. you? Yes, I was. But but Cribbins and Cryer were quite close. Um, have you ever seen the celebrity antique road trip they did together? No. Yeah. I that existed. They, yeah, they, yeah, they went. They did uh, an edition of um, Celebrity Antique Road Trip. God, and, and they they were the pair competing. It was it was, it was very very <laughs> sweet, as you would expect. And you were one of these lucky people that would just receive random phone calls from oh, Barry yeah. with with yeah. jokes. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, a state of the nation. What what's what's going on? Catching up with stuff, and then at the end of it, usually at least two jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Louis, I, I first probably became aware of you through. I mean, you've you've written a number of books, um, yeah. mainly mainly about comedians, light entertainment, and, yeah, and, and music. Yeah. But uh, and several years ago, I read "Turned Out Nice Again." Yeah, which I thought was wonderful. Um, I haven't actually managed to read um, your latest book which is sunshine and laughter neither have i uh, <laughs> about morecambe and wise yeah what, what did you take a different angle on that particular story or what, what what's your angle on that well the thing is i mean you've got you've got to tell the story hmm. um but it, I, the publisher wanted it and i said to them hasn't it been done many many times over and they said no well we we want you to do it. I went, oh, okay, okay. And I thought, Christ, how am I going to do this? And um, eventually I realised, I looked at all the other books and I thought, what are they missing? And like, I, I realised, I was sort of, where's all the stuff about Janet Webb? I want to know more about Janet Webb. So I put all mm. the, everything I could find about Janet Webb into this book. Um, you know, in Graham McCann's book, which is a doorstop and is brilliant and it's full of wonderful research and very, very well written. I think he gives her a paragraph, and I think, well, my priorities are slightly different. So I, you know, I, I, I filled in a lot of the marginal detail, but then I suppose that's what I do. Mm. Um, I, I write the sort of books that I want. Well, you know, I write the sort of books that I'd want to read. I just sort of go, hmm, they didn't cover that. I'll cover that. So, so yeah, so not the book, not the sort of book necessarily for the casual fan well no no it is it is it is it tells the it tells the story pretty you know pretty much as it's been told before but um it stands alone as a morecambe wise biography but it has some bits that other people possibly didn't bother with yeah Uh, uh, and you've recently written had a book out about ken dodd of course yes I'll tell you a very quick story. I used to work in our price in the nineties at, yeah. the, at the airport, <clears throat> Manchester airport. Okay. And um, this old guy came in wearing kind of like a pork pie hat, I want to say. Yeah. And at that time we had like a wall of videos in, in the shop. Yeah. And um, he came up to the counter and he said, uh, 
have you got the latest Ken Dodd video? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we did, and I went out and I showed him, and it was in on the shelf. It yeah. was it was spine. It was showing the spine. Yeah. yeah. And, and certain videos would would have you know would be uh, face on to to sort of highlight. Yeah. Them. And he and he sort of remonstrated with me. He said, "Well, this you know you, you should have it face face outward so people could see yeah. it." You know. Hmm. Um, and it was only then I realised it was Ken. It was Dodd. Ken Dodd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to say that I have been told off by Ken Dodd. <laughs> you know, authors and comedians and everyone everyone does that. The, putting their own stuff face out. I mean, I, the number of times with, with my books alphabetically would be quite near Charlie Brooker and I'd be sort of like putting his <laughs> mine on and mine face out. You know, I think he can stand the loss of sales. But. You've got a real affection for, I suppose, what you would call the more tradition of, traditional forms of comedy and light entertainment. And, oh, no, um, I love it all. I love the modern stuff. And, you know, I, I, I'm not one of these people who looks at old comedy and says, oh, it's better, it's better then mm. you can't say it now. You can't, all these things you can't say now. It's just there, there aren't, you can say anything now. You just got to back it up. Absolutely. How did that develop then? Was it just just growing up in the house? That, the yeah, house you grew yeah, up in, yeah. Just 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 growing up with it all around me. Yeah. And of course, uh, also big on your musician, big on jazz, big yes, band yes. music, that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah a bit a big band, big, a, a swinger, a big band musician. Yeah. Okay. And obviously that will feed into what we're going to talk about. But before, well, yeah. before, we, before we before we go get on to that. Yeah. Obviously, this is a podcast which. Is inspired by the goon the goon yeah. show um, but we but it, we broaden it out and talk about you know sellers projects milligan yeah. seeking being benteen etc so what's your what's your history with i mean first of all the goon show and, and secondly with those guys as performers it's my granddad's record collection and it was uh, an lp of um the missing number 10 downing street and the red fort yeah that was my first. That was my first goon listening experience with that with that uh, artificial stereo. I think. Oh, a horrible artificial stereo! Mm. Um, and what I didn't realise until I started getting the BBC records releases uh, was that these shows had musical interludes because they were edited out on the AMI versions. Mm. And um, glory be, I was introduced to Ray Ellington and um, Angela Morley. Actually, that was, that was one of the most interesting things, because I remember once when I was a kid getting, uh, I think it was um, uh, Lurgie Strikes Britain and the International Christmas Pudding on a cassette. Yeah. And on uh, this, that was a good show, BBC recorded programme, music by Wally, music directed by Wally Stott. And then on the, um, the yeah. mm. uh, inlay, it said uh, music, the musical director, Angela Morley. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what's this and i thought is this um is this a milligan joke or something and i found out that no angela morley was the same person mm. and um that they transitioned in 1972 and i'm very 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 privileged to have um known angela slightly met met her a couple of times and um oh right oh in- interviewed her and um yeah gosh she was lovely Okay, well, before, before we start talking about that, um, I wanted to mention um, a story I've seen you tell on Twitter, yeah. which I think is lovely. Um, it's a story of Harry Seacombe filming Highway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that came from Vernon Lawrence, who was um, a producer of Highway and you know, head of ITV Network Centre. Mm. And, uh, and, and Seacombe was an incredibly kind and generous soul, you know, one of the few people in show business who had no enemies whatsoever. Mm. And um, they were they were lo- doing a location shoot for Highway. There was um, it was it was one of the, the, one of the dancers. Um, it was his birthday, and he said that after after they finished filming, they went to the pub, and he went, "Oh, it's my birthday. I'd like to buy everyone a drink." And Harry said, "Look, look, mate, I know what dancers get paid." And um, <laughs> that's and good, he, Harry. And he and he said, "No, I know what dancers get paid. I'm not. Um, I'm not. I can't let you do that." He said, "No, it's my birthday. I absolutely insist." And um, Seacombe went, "Okay, well, I'll um, I'll have a I'll have a scotch. Thank you. That's very kind." And um, and he let the guy have his moment, being the big man, being you know kind and generous and all that. And it's his birthday. And then, as ever, as the party was breaking up, Seacombe went over to the dancer. And he shook his hand very, very vigorously. He said, thank you for that drink. It was a lovely gesture, young man. Thank you very much. And happy birthday to you. And turned about, walked away. 
And before he could realise what was going on, the dancer looked down and Seacombe had crammed a £50 note in his hand. Mm. And that was, you know, that was in the days when fifty pounds probably would have bought an entire pub, a, 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 you know, an <laughs> evening of drinks or whatever. Solid gold house, yeah. Solid gold house, yes. And um, so that was the measure of Seacom. He 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 made sure that the guy didn't lose out, and he made sure that he looked good, and he didn't try to steal the moment. He just stepped back from it. Yeah, and apparently that was absolutely the measure of Harry Seacom. That's wonderful. Can you? It's amazing that such a such a man as as he could work so effectively with two two polar opposites as Milligan and Sellers. In terms, well, of- that, well that, that's the thing. If you notice carefully, that Sellers and Milligan were always falling out with each other. Yeah, they never fell out with Seeker. No, he no. was the common element, and <clears throat> I think that a lot of the time Milligan was writing the goon shows so that Seacom, he and Sellers could have their little get together on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Because those two were rushing around the country doing variety. Spike did a fair bit of that, but you know, it wasn't really him. And then they'd come into London on the Sunday, do the show, and um, it would be a little, little reunion. And I think that Sellers and Seacom really, really treasured it. And Milligan in his own way, but it was hard work for him. Um, but yeah, yeah. Well, Seeker, I, would, Seeker would often get a phone call. Yeah. Can you come in a bit early because the, the boys are getting fractures and he'd come in and just, yeah, you know, calm things. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, was, the, he was the glue. Yeah. Yeah. He was the glue. Yeah. You, you've met Spike, I believe. I met Spike, uh, yes, twice. I went to his house to interview him when he had a book coming out. And then I was um, seated next to him at the Oldie of the Year Awards one year. He, uh, he had me on one side, Barry Cryer on the other side, and facing us was Ronnie Corbett. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. must have been... Uh, you must have thought to yourself... Well, I can't imagine what you thought to yourself being it's, in that company. Well, yeah, no, I, I was I, I, I was um, absolutely thrilled. I mean, I knew Baz already. Mm. I'd spoken to Ronnie Corbett before, but we hadn't really... Um, hadn't really got to know each other at all. Um, the, the events organizer at the oldie was a guy called Ben Tistel, good mate of mine. And I said, Blimey, why have you put Milligan in between me and Cry? He said, He gets bored. And I thought, if anybody is going to um keep him engaged, it'll be you two. And I put you know Ronnie across as well. And he said, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And as I was looking at, but as I was looking at the seating plan, um. A respected satirist who shall remain nameless but might be in his lot um, <laughs> uh, uh, came up behind me and said, Oh, bad luck, Bath. And I went, What? He went, <sighs> Drawn the short straw there. And I went, What? Sitting next to Spike Milligan? And I went, He went, Yeah, Christ, I did it once. Ooh. And I went, No, this is this is my idea of heaven. And I mean, at the time I was working for him, and, you know, we knew we, we still do, you know, we still stay in touch. Mm. Um, I've just done just done a thing on a, a little bit for a Radio Four documentary of his, but he he, um, he he said, "Oh no, it was hard work." Whereas I found it absolutely charmed and wonderful. I actually Spike, um, he, he was very near the end. I think it was I think he died about six months later. Okay, and yeah. he was clearly just. <sighs> they brought the, the the lunch out and they put meat in front of him and in the old days the table would have gone over wouldn't it and, mm. and um i said oh and i called the um head waiter over and i said excuse me have you got any of the vegetarian option left and um so spikes um the vegetarian and and spike said oh no i'll just i'll just eat round the i'll just eat round the meat i'll just eat the vegetables and I said, no, no, no. And, and, and the head waiter said, yes, said, of course, of course, took it away. And um, Spike touched my hand and said, thank you. You didn't have to do that, you know, but, but thank you. No. Yeah. And um, but if you just imagine what it would have been like years before. Um, well, that, uh, that reminds me a bit of um, the, the journalist Mark Allen. Yeah. Attending some some highfalutin dinner. Yeah. And whoever his the person sitting next to him was going to be was late. So he ordered, yeah. I think the story is he ordered veal. Yeah. 
and then the, the person who was sitting next to him turned up and it was Chrissy Hind. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And he was just sat there sort of dreading the food being served, you know. <laughs> How wonderful. It's <laughs> funny about Hislop, though, because he's written that play with Nick Newman, obviously, about Spike. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can imagine Spike probably not. From what I know, obviously, I don't know Ian Hislop. I only know his, his public yeah. persona, but I imagine that he, Spike would probably find him hard work. Ian's public persona is Ian. Right. I've, I've known him 25 years and worked for him for mm. a large part of it. And the, 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 the telly Ian is the office Ian. Right. Okay. Yeah, there's no, there's no act there. Sure, sure. Okay. I, I, I suppose. I, I think Ian has enormous respect for Milligan, but um, on the day that he actually was sat next to him at lunch, he found it slightly hard going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so this week, yes, as as we sort of touched on, we're going to be talking about the the composer and arranger Angela Morley. Yes whose early career working for BBC Radio, I think is often more talked about, especially among the sort of people who listen to things like this, mm. um, but in an award-winning career spanning the 30s to her death. I think the, I think she began in the 30s. Were they- um, it's 40, I think 41. Or, right, okay. Started, started yeah. with Geraldo and various dance yeah, bands, yeah. alto saxophonist. Yeah, but but right up until pretty much the end, and yeah. to, to 2009, she was involved sometimes in an uncredited capacity with yes. with um, music for people like Shirley Bassey, mm. Scott Walker, um, who famously compared working with Angela like working with Delius. Oh God, yeah. Um, not Delia Smith, Delius, <coughs> uh, Frankie Vaughan, and Dusty Springfield, as well as films like Peeping Tom very noticeably, yeah. um, Looking Glass War, Watership Down, oh, and, yeah. and, and of course, uh, Star Wars, Home Alone, Schindler's List, etc. Yeah. Um, and hit US TV shows like Wonder Woman, Dynasty, Cagney Lacey, etc. But, of course, um, you know, we're going to touch on all that, but she was the conductor, composer, and arranger on The Goon Show from 1952, following the departure of Stanley Black. Yes, and, who I also knew. Oh my God! Right, we're going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> oh God! Let me push on. <laughs> just, just to get, just to get this out of the way. She had a rare talent to work very quickly and efficiently, and would sometimes write music for the show the same day of recording. Yeah. Two, two full band arrangements and incidental music. She'd sometimes just come up with music on the hoof and give musicians a lot of elbow room to perform. Um, and I just want to begin by saying, before we start talking, I just want to begin by saying that I, I suppose for some people listening to this, they will be most familiar with Angela's work on, on The Goon Show and other things like Hancock's Half Hour. Um, that was obviously under her, her dead name of Wally Stott. And uh, like you say, transitioned in the early 70s. Yeah. And for the purpose of this, of this podcast, uh, we're going to refer throughout to Angela Morley. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so what was the chief reason that you wanted to talk about Angela Morley? Um. I just think she was an enormously important figure in in the whole of music. I mean, the Goon Show was part of what she did, mm. but she does as as you said so much of it. And you know, the the Scott Walker stuff um, was out there. Mama. Do you see what I see? On your knees and pray for me. Matilda's come back to me. Charlie, don't want another beer. Tonight I'm gonna drink my tears. Matilda's come back to me. It wasn't standard pop music. And um, he obviously dug what she was doing and what she could offer. I mean, actually, for someone who was doing this experimental sort of stuff, his two favourite arrangers were Angela and Peter Knight. And Peter Knight did, you know, the Morecambe and Wise shows for Mm -hmm. years. Um, Yeah, I, I, I just think that she's a thread running through so much. And um, I, one of one of my favourite things about Angela's career, um, my, my friend Gavin Sutherland, the conductor, um, introduced me to it many, many years ago. It was her London Pride album, which later reissued as London Souvenir. And mm-hmm. you can buy it once. You know, it took me years to find a stereo copy. Um, but you can buy it... Um, 
on CD now. I think Cherry Red have reissued it. And oh my God, it's beautiful. Um, uh, Nightingale sang in Barclay Square with a close mic trombone solo by Lad Busby. Oh, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Mm. Uh, but also, you know, around the same time, she did an album with Mel Torme called Torme Meets the British. And it's basically the Goon Show, Mel Torme with the Goon Show Band. And <laughs> it's great. Um, well, uh, it, it's partially great. Uh, it has the curiosity of Mel Tormey's singing, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. <laughs> there they are all standing in a row. Big ones, small ones, some as big as your head. Yeah, no. <clears throat> and of course, when, when Mel Tormey died, um, The Guardian, in its uh, infinite capacity for misprints, uh, referred to him as the Velvet Frog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And of course, Bill, Mel, Mel Torme. Uh, do, do you know who um, whose whose stage name he is responsible for indirectly? No. Bill Tar Bill Tarmy, who oh, was Jack Jackworth in yeah. Coronation Street. Yeah, uh, he was originally he originally went out on the clubs as a singer, and he billed himself as Bill Torme. Right. And he got to one club somewhere in the outskirts of Manchester, and uh, the uh, the concert secretary obviously couldn't spell Tommy, and he was up on the board as Bill Tommy, <laughs> and uh, he decided to keep it. Yeah. Oh, lovely. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Peter Knight. Yes. And I'm just having a bit of a senior moment here, and mm. I should I should know this because I've mm. listened to it enough. But didn't Peter Knight? Wasn't he the um, was it either conductor on the last Goon Show of All? It was on the last Goon Show of All, yes. Yeah, because yeah, I think at the time Angela was either undergoing or um, recuperating from the surgery, yeah, from transitioning, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. from the gender reassignment, yeah. So no, so but but you know she, she had what I th what I think is marvelous about the Goon Show is that it wasn't a huge band. It was probably about thirteen or fourteen players, um, but she made the most of what they could do and made it sound like a much bigger band uh, which, which obviously, well, obviously played well with you know the bbc e economics of it you know mm. a big sound out of a smallish band then wonderful i um yeah because i heard an interview with angela morley I wasn't yeah. sure when don't i'm not quite sure when it was recorded but she was talking quite a bit about the goon show mm. And obviously the, the old memory was going a, a little mm. bit here, but she she mentioned that when she took over from Stanley Black yeah. in 52, the band had a, a full rhythm section, strings, a harp. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she said every year they decreased mm. the size of the band. And she yes. thinks the theory is because uh, Sellers, Seekham and Milligan wanted more money. Um, yes. So that was that was a way of you know getting more money, basically, getting uh, 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 um, decreasing the size of yeah. the band. Yeah, no, that 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 does that does fit sadly. Um, typical, typical BBC. But but she had, well, you know, her 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 main trombonist was always George Chisholm, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and he always when they played Lucky Strike at the end of the show, always there'd be uh, alto solo from Bob Burns, and um, Chisholm trombone solo, and it. it, it he had a basic form for it and it's always lovely listening to the um different recordings of the show to hear where he took the solo because there's a basic boilerplate version of it and but he, he'd always do a variant on it each week it, 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 and I, I do think that lucky strike is one of the most glorious mm. joyous pieces of music you'll ever hear I, th just... I th well, I think the last Goon Show of all, when you watch the telly version of it, I think those recording—that's uh, a fairly good representation of what those recordings must have been like, because they're all larking around with each other, and the band are part of it as well. Mm. And mm. it's uh, yeah. The other, th the other thing she was this interview with Angela Morley mentioned that she was at school with Judd Proctor. Yes, yes, yeah, in um, in in Leeds, yeah. And Judd was the guitarist in the um the both the Ray Ellington Quartet and the Goon Show Band for a very long time. The drummer and percussionist was usually Jock Cummings from the Squadronaires. Mm -hmm. Um the bass player for a lot of later on was Pete McGurk, who yeah. was the bass player in later on in the Dudley Mortrier. 
Uh-huh. Um, yes. So, so there's a, there's a, you know a comic music dynasty. And you've got Freddie, Freddie Clayton. Freddie Clayton, um, trumpet. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Poggy Pogson would get ah, yes. the odd solo. Well, well Poggy, Poggy Pogson was um, a delight to write for um, for for someone like um, Ange. Uh, because he'd play anything that had a reed in it. So he had this strange, he, I mean, he'd been a dance band and studio musician since the 1920s. You know, he'd been with Roy Fox and people like that. And um, he had this marvellous collection of odd instruments that had gone out of fashion, including the hot fountain pen. Right. Okay. Which is a penny whistle with a clarinet mouthpiece. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And um, so Angela Morley and uh, and also he he was a regular on um, Kenny Baker's Let's Settle for Music uh, with Kenny Baker's Dozen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Angela and uh, Kenny would um, write especially for whatever Poggy could find in his back cupboard. They go, what, what have you got this way? Oh, i drag that out. Yeah. Well, these, these strange instruments that he'd accumulated over the years and that no one else had and no one else could play. He'd get them out and they'd have, have fun writing arrangements for them. Poggy Pogs. And, um, the piano was usually Dick Katz. Dick Katz, that's right. Um, yeah. And uh, guitar Judd Proctor, um, saxophone. It was a, Alto was usually Bob Burns. Lad Busby. Lad Busby, who did the um, trombone solo on um, um, Nothing Else in Berkeley Square, uh, which were actually um, Ange retooled once from a play out. No, 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 not a play out. Retooled once for a Max Geldre feature. It's, the, it's a similar arrangement. In fact, there are several different stages of that arrangement. I think she wrote it originally for the Mel Torme album and then retooled it for her own London Pride album and then mm. also adapted it further. But it's 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 basically the same arrangement. It's a glorious thing. Um because some of those Max Geldre things there seems to be a basic form for the Max Geldre features. They start slow and then they go into double mm. time. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendously effective thing. And I mean Andrew was writing this stuff um, right against the clock because she was so busy with um, record sessions uh, for Phillips during the week. Yeah. She didn't have time to start on anything until the Sunday morning. So, you know, she'd be arriving at the Camden or the Paris or wherever with um, the ink still wet on the page. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not as bad as Johnny Keating, who would probably be still arranging it while the show was going out. <laughs> um, he was notorious for that. Brilliant arranger, but his time management was as bad as mine. And um, yeah, but I believe that um, Geldre occasionally would go to her flat in the in the week. Yes, um, to sort of sort things out, work out a few arrangements. They work some. They work something out. Yeah, yeah. and also, but as you say, you know, I think maybe with the Nightingale sang one, she was sort of like right up against it and thought, I'll just pull this arrangement that I've done and cut it down. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, it works incredibly well. So you met, you said you met Stanley Black, who was a predecessor. I did. Yes. Yes. I went to interview him for um, my first book. Well, actually, that's what I interviewed Angela for. I both interviewed them for both for my first book. Um, Where have all the good times gone? History of the music industry. Yeah. And um, yes, because Stanley had been a big musical director for Decca just like Ange had been um big musical director for Phillips. And mm. um, <clears throat> yeah, no, the, the thing is, <sighs> Stanley Black wasn't necessarily loved by his musicians because um, he was quite a hard taskmaster. And I, you know, I know I knew one percussionist who um, just said, oh, I dreaded working for Stanley. It was always horrible. <laughs> right. Whereas actually, and then I, you know, mileage varies. I, I, you know, Duncan Lamont, the great, lovely Duncan Lamont, who we lost a couple of years ago, mm. uh, beautiful, beautiful saxophone player, fantastic arranger, great writer. He said, oh, I never had any problem with Stanley. He, he liked what I did and he left me alone. And, oh, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I went, 
okay, you know, but obviously, you know, not everyone can get on with everyone. Mm. BBC Television presents Tony Hancock in Hancock's Arthur. See, I'm not, um, I'm not particularly a fan of, I don't mind it, but I've not listened to a lot of Hancock's Half Hour. Just not, it was never really my thing. Well, the Hancock's Half Hour, there's not much music in there. It's mostly scene changes and the theme. But uh, so Angela wrote the theme. Yeah, Angela wrote that and it was, this is perfect. It just sums up the whole character. You know, I, th- I think it was, it was Dennis Maindrain. It would have been Dennis Maindrain, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the boys... I say the boys, Ray and Alan, would where they went. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what we want. Yeah. And um, and over the years, Angela would write further little incidental music links for the show that would get them from scene to scene. But the theme remained roughly the same. Mm. Actually, it was re-recorded. Um, a few years ago for the um when they did the lost hancocks the um, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. thing with kevin mcnally and it was it was Lev perikian conducted the orchestra and it was lovely it was great um I, th- I think i think you know modern conductors and arrangers love revisiting the angela library because there's just so much in it yes well because i interviewed um dirk mags recently yeah oh, lovely dirk yeah, and he was talking about when he was looking to put on stage what became Goon again. Yes, yeah. And they went to, I can't remember the the, the, the place, the archive, where all the sort of old musical cues were. Cabochon? No. He didn't, I don't think he mentioned it by name, but he said it was so badly, Yeah. everything was so badly preserved and it was, everything was, everything was damp and they yeah. essentially had to, to smuggle out these oh. musical scores. Uh, these, yeah. these were the, the the original um these these were the originals that yeah. Angela Morley had had not kept if you like no no yeah and they ended up doing that with um John Wilson's orchestra didn't they that's right yes yeah, that was a glorious glorious thing mm. so you've interviewed Angela you interviewed what, twice did you say no I met met her twice I met her twice her once yeah okay the interview was done um in a, in a crude and early form of um what we're doing now mm. um where i i sent her an email with questions and she posted me a mini disc from arizona right um because we met and we didn't have time to do the interview when we met and um and she she said oh no no send me the questions and so i've i've got this recording hello louis these are the answers to your questions <laughs> it's well i yeah so that um but we had a lovely chat. We, used to, we met at a place called the Coda Club, which is um, still going. It's a monthly um, social event for musicians. And um, when I started going to it 20 odd years ago, you know, um, pe- a lot of people were still around, including Judd Proctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and Angela would come over once a year um, and come along to the club. So it was, a, yeah, it was a quite a thing to be around and go crikey you yeah over there you did that would, would it be fair to say that her her latter the latter half of her career if you like was more financially beneficial in terms of just the, some of the film works and, and that and i, I think i think i think film work tent does tend to pay better doesn't it i think it also gives you sort of some kind of longevity you know the film the films keep getting shown um but I, I, I think she did all right. And um, <clears throat> you see, see, the point I'm trying to come to, and I yeah. don't know how to say this in a, without sounding, I don't know. I'm just wondering how, what was the overall reaction? Because obviously people transitioning was, was, mm. was not really, it was really in its infancy when Angela yeah. did it. And, and I'm just wondering what the overall reaction was you know, among her peers and among... See, I, I know that I, she... Do you know what? I think in music, nobody really cared because mm. it was still absolutely, um, you know, it didn't affect 
the quality of the Talent. product. Yeah, like, all that mattered, all that mattered really didn't matter who, whose name was on it. You know, can I have it good? Do you want it good or do you want it Monday? Um, both <laughs> would be preferable. And Angela was good at both. You can have it good and you can have it right now. Uh, the famous story of how she rescued Watership Down. Malcolm Williamson just got the gig and couldn't do it. And um, they called in Angela. And, of course, she wrote the perfect score for it. Mm. Um, and there was a lovely radio play by Sarah Woolley um, starring Rebecca Root as Angela. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the title of it, but it 1977. was 1977. Well, it was, yes, yeah. well remembered. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that was a lovely play, and I thought yeah. that um, capt- it really captured um, Angela's personality exquisitely. Um, very, Angela's a very, very gentle soul. It's funny that, you know, to survive in a cutthroat business and also to have this, um, what you might perceive as a, as a frailty. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, an astonishing. It says a lot about the talent that um, that she did, what she did, and survived so long. And and uh, I think she was just good to people. I think you know she was just she treated people well, and people stuck with her. Yes, do, yeah. do as you know, do as you would be done by. I think that was her her watchword, really. It's always easier with new people, isn't it? They accept you for who you are. It's the people who've known you before that's difficult. I have to work out if they know, and then if they do know, I have to decide whether or not to acknowledge it. And if they don't know, well, what to say? Tell me you don't regret it. Oh, no, God, no. No, 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 I could never regret the acts of change. I couldn't be happy without it. But I regret the confusion it causes, the explaining, the awkward silences. How were the rabbits? <laughs> uh, the rabbits are quite extraordinary. I identified very strongly with Hazel. Remind me, which one is he? The mad genius who has the visions? Uh, no. Hazel is the sensible, level-headed one who rallies the troops and gets everyone home safe and sound. You want to do this, don't you? Oh, it's a film, Christine. There'll be a premiere, screenings. As the film's composer, I won't be able to hide. I don't... I don't want to embarrass anyone. You won't? How can you think that? Is that what's stopping you? Well, plus the fact that they want it in three weeks, and I haven't even read Read the book. Read the book, I know. At one point, Peter Sellers put his house up for sale in Finchley. Hmm. I think it was towards the end of the Goon Show's run. And and Angela was was set to buy it and put down a deposit and everything, and then decided, actually, it was going to be a bit too far outside, Hmm. I guess, central London. Yeah, um, and so pulled out of it, and then Peter ended up selling the house to Alfred Marx. Yeah, but for some reason, stayed living in it for for a while, <laughs> and it and it and it get you know Stark Lodge, Fabrizzi round, and um, you know they'd be having parties and all the rest of it, and on Guy Fawkes night, they set off a load of fireworks. Yeah, and Sellers somehow or other a. a a firework went through a plate glass window <clears throat> and two rooms went up apparently wow. and, and were burnt out. And I think by all accounts, Sellers just kind of, well, it's Alfred's house now and walked away, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which you could imagine. Yeah. I can well imagine it. Sellers wasn't great. Was he? You know, there's so much talent, but Oh my God. You know, <clears throat> You mentioned yeah. actually, you mentioned two way stretch. I don't want to digress too much, but you no. mentioned two way stretch. Is, yeah. is that is that your? Do you say that's your favourite Sellers film? I think it might well be. I think it might be my favourite film. It, 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 it's a real comfort blanket. I think you've said. I've seen you. I'm not sure where I read it. I'm sure I heard you say or seen you say somewhere that you're quite fond of the party. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was on. It was on TV one Christmas Eve. And I watched it with my granddad, and it was the first time I'd seen it. And um, <laughs> just, just the shoe going, the, fa- the idea of someone having a stream running through the middle of yeah. the house. But the, just the whole scene where he's trying to recapture the lost shoe as he's floating. <laughs> it's, it's, um, yeah. And, 
<laughs> the Diving Watch. This this film set in eighteen eighty nine. And the toilet <laughs> roll, yeah. And the toilet. Oh, <laughs> and of course. <laughs> The, the, the thing that everyone remembers, the, the public address system in the house. Yes. Baddie num num. <laughs> Baddie num num. I know it's hugely problematic now, but um, I, I, I think one of the interesting things about Sellers and his, his Sellers and Milligan, their, their portrayal of Indian. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, characters, it, they, you know, Spike had been brought up in India. Peter had spent a lot of time in India, in the RAF. Mm -hmm. So these things were done from close observation and with great affection. And also when, you know, the transcription service um, cuts of the goon shows mm -hmm. went out to various, you know, radio stations on the subcontinent, they, they, they were hugely loved. And also, I think, you know, didn't Spike and Peter used to put in doubtful bits of Urdu. Urdu, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. to um for the listenership and they get past the sense and get an enormous laugh in Uttar Pradesh or whatever. <laughs> well the, the, yeah those transcription uh, those transcription services um records would go out and they'd always have a synopsis. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think it's in Roger Wilmot's book that he writes yeah. um that there would there, there'd always be a little mention of Mr. Lal Kaka and Mr. Um, and that was more so that if there were any radio stations that um, were more sensitive about those yeah. characters for whatever reason, which I suppose yeah. sounds quite progressive for the 1950s, mm. um, they yeah. wouldn't necessarily need to play that particular episode no. on those characters. No. Um, or, it might, well, I don't know, but... Uh, Warning, contains strong caricatures. <laughs> yeah. No, no, where were we? Um, yeah, a few more things about Angela that yeah, I just sure. wanted to mention. Um, she, she, she wrote the um, Ident Zoom 2. She for, did um, for ATV. Yes, the famous one in color. Um, and the music. I mean, cues. actually, you know, you talk about money. Oh yeah. I think that would have been very, very good regular money. Um, Johnny Johnny Hawksworth who wrote um, Salute to Thames, uh, never had to work again. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, think about it. You know, these things are being played however many times a day. For, so, yeah. You know, the, you know, uh, Salute to Thames was used before every Thames programme mm. for 20 years. I used to have it as a ringtone, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, you know, if you could write an ident, um, the royalties were very kind to you. Mm. So I think, yeah, I think, I think, um, I think possibly Zoom too would have supported um, a large part of um, Angela's later career. Absolutely, it meant she could turn down, or you know, it meant she didn't have to do everything that came in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but tying up the two questions, um, I think that might be a, a key to financial security, and, and of course, sadly now. Um, Idents with no, but yeah, I think the people who write, you know, news themes. You know, I think David Lowe, who wrote um, the BBC News themes, probably um, not exactly holding a holding a tin out outside mm. um, Rumbelows. You know, <laughs> it's only tw and yeah, and Zoom Two is only twelve notes, isn't it? Yeah, and that was, that, that's the beauty of it. You know, these things that cap to capture something. And identify something in twelve notes. That's a, that's a rare form of genius. Mm. Um, famously, on the, the the at last the Go On show, which was the yes, fortieth anniversary documentary that Dirk put together. Yeah, and he, and he interviewed Angela among many other people, mm. and <clears throat> Angela talked specifically about composing the national anthem for the episode "The Sleeping Prince." Yeah, Goon Show. Have you heard that? No. no. Okay. If you ever get, if you get a chance, listen to the the Goon Show called The Sleeping Prince from Series yeah. Seven. It's this, it's this fake uh, kind of Ruritanian country. Yeah. And it has a national anthem which gets hmm. gets gets repeatedly played throughout the show, and it's the most charmingly ridiculous, full of bum notes and <laughs> <laughs> sort of a real Portsmouth Sinfonia job. Well, Spike made his uh, his needs 
very plainly known. I mean, he, he described in the, in the script every week how he wanted it to be. And then, of course, when we got to rehearsal, Spike would sometimes say, no, 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 it sounds too good. <laughs> I, I know in one show there, were, there had to be a national anthem for some Ruritanian sort of country in Middle Europe, you know. And I wrote, I composed this national anthem. Then when Spike heard it, he said, no, that sounds much too good. He said, I just want to hear one instrument at a time. So it sort of kind of started with piccolo, and then it went to trombone, and then it went to violin or something. And, and, uh, and he was absolutely right. It sounded fantastic. I'd like to think I composed it that way, you see. <laughs> Had the courage, and of course, she carrying on the goon theme. She wrote cues for Bridge on the River Y. Yes, she thinks she met George Martin for the first time in the mid forties, when he was like a junior at EMI. Yes, when yes. he was probably, probably when he was Oscar Price's assistant, and um, she was doing a session with God knows whoever. Yeah, and Gir- then Geraldo or something. Geraldo, and then she said she. I think she she then would would work with him or met him on the recording for Bridge on the River Y, and that was in 62. Yeah. And then she said, for some reason, I, n- I never met him again after that. <laughs> I don't know whatever <laughs> happened to him. Uh, one, one, one of the things that I love and I would adore if it ever emerged um, is, is, is on another lot on um, yeah. uh, Milligan Preserve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I think it is George Martin rather than Ron Goodwin. Um, the beautiful orchestral backing to the auction. Mm. If, if, a, if a clean copy of that ever emerged, I'd be very happy. Mm. I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Angela Morley. Yeah. Recalls the first time that she saw Peter Sellers, mm. which was post-war London on Archer Street. Ah, Archer Street. Yes, the great the great open air labour exchange where all the musicians would um, gather <laughs> for their gigs and be told where to where to go the following week. Yeah. It, what is interesting is that both Spike and Peter were jazz musicians. Spike was a trumpeter mm. and Peter was a drummer. Mm. So I, th- I think, I think you know, th- there was that connection. I, th- I think there is a, a huge connection between jazz and comedy. I mean, if you look, oh, at, yeah. look at Dudley, look at Spike, look at Peter. And I think uh, improvising and, um, and also the humour involved you know musicians humor is of a particular type and i think that there was a lot of musicians humor in the goon show and also i think that the music i think angela made the music humorous without being wacky it was very much spot on it was it it was it was an underpinning it was a counterpoint yeah the example often given in the goon show is the is the scene in uh, dishonored yeah uh, where Seagun declares that he's going to join the navy and then there's a medley of <laughs> yes <laughs> sea shanties and naval songs uh which uh which are played with brio i'm gonna clear my name and get back my self-respect i'll i'll join the navy <laughs>
It's too damn noisy in the Navy. Yeah, <laughs> glorious one, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and, and that would have been huge when you knew that was coming. I bet Seacombe was waiting to deliver that line mm-hmm. all, all, you know, all afternoon was going, oh, because he knew it would bring the house down. It was, yeah, it, it, it was clever writing and, it, you know, it was done against, done against a very, very tight deadline. Uh, yeah, I think the Goon Show without the music that Angela composed and arranged would, would have been I, a, I, a very different beast from what we I think it would be, I think it was a perfect fit. And I think that there are a lot of other people who were, you know, great musical directors on those shows, you know, but, but would it have been the same if it had been Paul Fenley or whoever? Mm. Um, and I think they found this slightly when they went to, when they when they ended up making records for Decca. Mm-hmm. And because Angela was with Phillips, um, they couldn't take Angela with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they struck, I think they struggled a bit to find um, people who could match Angela's. And they ended up using a combination of um, Philip Martell and Malcolm Lockyer. And Malcolm Lockyer um, later did um, the music on the Ken Dodd shows on radio. Um, but I think, you know, they, I think they, they needed Angela really. Mm. Like, the arrangements on things like the, the Ying Tong song and all that are great, but I think if they'd had access to Angela, then it would have been a a, a, a different thing entirely. Mm. I'd like to know, actually. Again, it's not something that I've been able to yeah. pin down. What Spike no. thought of Angela Morley as a as a creative force on the show, I, you know, because um, he was very exacting, as you know, and very demanding terms of what he wanted and i don't think he ever got any ever ever had any issues or problems no no i think i think it was a, i think it was a perfect fit i think it was the right the right people the right combination and um you know i think you know they always had very good producers uh it was a really, I, I don't think there was much disharmony on the goon show i think that the, the disharmony was between um the Goon Show and the BBC management. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but within the team itself, it was, it all seemed to fit together very well. You know, people like Pat Dixon, people mm. like Charles Chilton, all of those, they all seem to, they all seem to fit together very well. And they protected the show from the suits. I think they always felt quite sad to lose peter eaton when he went off to um produce television at granada mm, mm-hmm. i think they i think they really sort of um they missed him i think he was a, a huge favorite of theirs yeah yeah because you had him until the end of series six more or less and then pat yeah. dixon came along and pat dixon they really liked working with spike loved working with yeah. pat dixon and then you had series eight when there was a number of different producers and it was pretty variable in its mm. quality and then john browell came along yes. john browell was really good as well so yeah no, so they, they went they, out they love john brown on a high. And, but, but um the interesting thing about pat dixon is and i discovered this when i was writing um i was writing a chapter for a book about the history of decca records mm-hmm. um, I, I did um, easy listening and comedy um songs mm. and um when i was looking through the credits on the goon records i saw credits for milligan and carboni Right. And I, I always wondered who Carboni was. Mm. And it was Tony Carboni. I was talking to um, Verity Newman, who t- TV producer, made documentaries about Spike. And she said, oh, I know who it was. Um, I, we had this tape. Um, it was Spike talking to Pauline Skewdemore. And it was Pat Dixon. And he, he couldn't do it under his own name because he was BBC staff. But you know, he would co-write Goon Records with Spike. Oh, right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And that, I thought that was, I thought that was fantastic, a fantastic piece of knowledge. I mean, that, like, you talked to me earlier about um, the, um, how did I approach Morecambe and Wise and did I add anything? Hmm. I always try and put something new in anything I do, even if it's like, you know, 800 words or whatever. I had to do... Uh, I had to do 800 words from for, for the Telegraph on the 50th anniversary of Monty Python. And um, I thought, oh, it's been done a million and one times. And everyone's mentioned the fact that um, 
not every not every region got it and in scotland they had something else and in mm. wales they had something else mm. and um and i thought yes but how many of these people mentioned what the other programs were and i realized they hadn't yeah so there was my one thing that <laughs> i could add to the store of human knowledge and I, you know, in a short piece, I always try to find one thing that no one's found yeah. before. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the book, I hopefully find more than one. Oh well, Louis, listen, thank you very much for your time. Um, no, my pleasure. It's, my it's, pleasure. I'm glad that we were able to talk, you know, a little bit about yeah. someone who was incredibly talented, such a long career, yeah. and um, and so much different stuff. Pretty much, yeah. you know. The, the, you, you, oh yeah, she had range. Oh yeah. Thanks again to Louis. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, Please rate and review and subscribe. Next week, it is a special show about the Beatles and the Goons and the many connections between them. I will see you next week. Take it easy. See ya. Bye.